Amen. Thanks to our musicians for bringing us before the throne of grace. We're continuing through Ecclesiastes. Today we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So if you want to get your Bible and go ahead and be turning there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the one that's there in the chair. Uh, Our passage today should be on page 555. Should be easy to remember. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 is what we'll be looking at. So last week, we looked at the the horizontal dimension of our relationships. We looked at, um, and and what we saw in Ecclesiastes 4 was how all of the the vanity, all of the struggle, indeed the oppression, uh, the injustice, the envy, the selfishness, the laziness that we see around us, comes from a focus on me instead of we. That when I think horizontally, I think first and foremost about me instead of you. Uh, and that has been uh, convicting this week. One of the things that I have realized about myself, and shouldn't be a surprise, uh, and yet it always is, when God peels off some of those scabs and shows me what my heart's really like, I realize that the way that I uh, the, the way that I look at people is first through the lens of what I can get out of you. Not how can I serve you or help you, but how can you help me meet my goals? Uh, and so that's what, that's what God's word revealed to us last week. This week, we're going to turn our attention from the horizontal to the vertical, uh, to our relationship with God. We're going to deal with this topic of worship. But I, I want you to see that there's... These two are next to each other in Ecclesiastes for a reason. Those two views, the horizontal and the vertical, are related to each other. That the, the problem in my view of you is really that I have a deficient view of God. That I, and, and Jesus connected these, right? When he was asked to summarize all of God's law, he summarized it by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That... Love of God and love of neighbor are connected. When I'm deficient in the one, I'm, I can trace that back to a deficiency in the other. And so uh, let's give our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Because a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The grass withers and the flowers fade. 
but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we should stand silent before you. And we would draw near to listen. So would you help us to do that? Help us to hear what it is you're saying. That we would worship you aright. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most noticeable feature, external feature, of older church buildings? Steeple. Yep, a steeple. I was uh, at a meeting this week at one of our sister churches in Montgomery, uh, and what do you think I saw above the skyline before I ever saw the rest of the building? I saw the steeple. In fact, if you look at downtown Clanton, what sticks out above the skyline of downtown Clanton? A church steeple. Have you ever, have you ever thought about why churches put steeples on their buildings? What, what is the function of a steeple? What does it do? When, you're, when your eyes see it, where do they go? They go up. They go up. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, an old, old cathedral. Uh, you don't have to travel abroad to do this. You can go to some older cities like Mobile or New Orleans or Augusta. Uh, but if you've ever been inside of an old cathedral, right, you, you, you open these heavy wooden doors and you step inside and you see right these walls and columns made of stone and they reach up into the ceiling and almost kind of the ceiling almost disappears in shadow and you have these soaring arches and light pouring in through colored windows what is the effect what happens to your mouth when you walk into a a building like that. You hush. Right? It's quiet. You you hush. Why? What's happening inside of you when you when you see that? You're you're realizing, right? The architecture is designed to make you see how small you are and how big God is. Now that that doesn't mean that God can't be glorified or worshipped in a, in a mud hut, uh, a school cafeteria, or a shopping center, a storefront church. That, that doesn't mean that worship can't happen in those places. And in fact, uh, in many of those cathedrals, they cease to be churches now and are museums, right? Especially in Europe. So that architecture doesn't mean that we worship, but we have to ask ourselves the question, what have we lost by abandoning that kind of architecture? What have, we, what have we given away? Right? The greatness of the room is designed to remind us of how small we are. Then I think we often forget that when we, when, when we come into worship, right, now, with our modern-day focus on making worship spaces more casual and comfortable, what have we forfeited? I think we've forfeited that sense of intimidation. In fact, I imagine if we asked folks why we design modern church buildings the way we do, we'd say, well, you know, people, people who aren't in church, they, they don't want to come to traditional church buildings 
Uh, those, those are off-putting. And I wonder if it's off-putting because it's intimidating. Uh, there's a grandeur there that makes us feel small. And we don't like to feel small. We forget that when we come to worship, what we're doing is we're coming into God's presence. We're coming into God's presence. And so we ought to, as Ecclesiastes says, hush. We ought to shut our mouths before God's glory. That's what the preacher wants us to do. He wants us to learn how to fear God. Now, not fear in the sense of be afraid, though in some senses that's good to be afraid. Not not like a horror movie fear, but that awe that you have before something that is greater than you. A, a healthy respect, we might say. Uh, those of you who are older will know the names Siegfried and Roy, uh, German magicians who for years traveled in circuses and had a show in, in Las Vegas. Uh, and a big fixture of their show was white tigers. They trained tigers to do tricks and different things. And it was amazing. But in 2003, one of those tigers attacked Roy, bit clear through his throat, severed an artery, dragged him around the stage. Right? Absolutely horrifying. We forget that God is not a tame cat. I don't know if Roy forgot what it was he was dealing with, but I think oftentimes when we come into worship, we forget who it is that we're dealing with. And so that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to remember. And we see that a, a healthy fear of God is revealed in two things. One, it's revealed in a listening heart. Two, it's revealed in an honest mouth. And the mouth flows from the heart. So let's look at a listening heart. Verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So house of God, that would have been the temple in the Old Testament, the place where uh, these people would worship God. And he's saying, so we know we're, we're in the context of, of worship. And he's saying, watch your step as you enter the presence of God. Don't be careless about how you worship. Why? Why doesn't he want us to do that? Well, what he wants to do, remember that, and this is what makes Ecclesiastes an uncomfortable book, it, it wants to unsettle us, right? The, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to unsettle us, wants to deconstruct a lot of the silliness that's in our lives so that we can build something better. And so what he wants to do here is he wants to unsettle our shallow, glib approach to worship, a very me-centered approach approach to worship right how do we often leave this room what do we often do when we come away from this room right we say i like the music the music was good today that was a good sermon i really appreciate it it was good to see so and so i hadn't seen her in a while that was great and we can we can enjoy the experience without ever actually focusing on the one at the center of that experience namely god we can be affected by the experience and totally ignore the God we're supposed to meet here. So how, 
How do we watch our steps? Well, look at again at verse 1. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What's the sacrifice of fools? Well, in the context, we see that uh, lots of words, lots of uh, hasty speaking. He says that, that fools worship so carelessly that they don't even realize what they're doing. They don't even know they're doing evil. They don't slow, slow down long enough to realize what they're doing. Follow the progression of foolish worship there in verse 2. He says, don't be rash with your mouth. Right? So uh, that word rash, literally this reads, don't hurry over your mouth. Hurrying mouth. No time to think. No time to stop. The mouth just runs and runs and runs. And you say lots of things you don't mean. And where does a hurrying mouth come from? Well, it comes from a... A hasty heart. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. A hasty heart. I think of, uh, I think of the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. Uh, no time to say hello, goodbye, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. Right? We're always so spun up and so busy in heart and in mouth that we don't stop. We don't hush and we don't listen. And that's what the preacher wants us to do. He wants us to listen. He wants us to have a listening heart, not a hasty heart. How do we get a listening heart? Again, verse 2. He says, don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God because God is in heaven and you are on earth. What he points to to make our hearts stop is, here's the fancy word, God's transcendence. That means God is far. He is high. He is above. That there is, a, there is a gap between him and us. And that, that that infinite bigness of God and our incredible smallness, right? The fact that he's the creator and we are the creature. That distance should cause us to shut our mouths. And listen. Shut our mouths and open our ears. In fact, when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer, how does he tell us to start that prayer? Our Father who is where? In heaven. Right? And then what's the first thing he tells us to ask God? Hallow your name. That word hallow. I mean, glorify your name. So the very first thing on Jesus' lips in prayer is God, his majesty and his glory. Therefore, the preacher says, let your words be few. If God is in heaven and I am on earth, and I am on earth then I should let my words be few. So here's what that means for us. It means we need to listen before we speak. It's why in our worship service, uh, one, we have a song that's designed to kind of gather, uh, gather us in, bring us in the room, uh, and help us to begin to focus on what it is we're here to do. But then also we have a prayer of preparation. We have a time to be still and silent before the Lord so that... We recognize 
He is in heaven and we are on earth. And the most important thing is not what I can say to him. The most important thing is what he says to me. It's why in our bulletin, we very intentionally say God calls us into worship. It is from God's word that we get a call into worship. It's God who calls us to repentance. That comes from God's word. It's God who assures us of his forgiveness, again, from his word. And then in the benediction, it's God who blesses us and sends us out. Everything we do in our worship service, we try to build around God's word, God speaking, so that we are listening. So we need to listen before we speak in public worship and in private worship. When you sit at home uh, and take some time uh, to read God's word and to worship him individually, begin that time. uh, I think it was Martin Luther who said, uh, We ought to begin prayer with our hands over our mouths. So rather than rushing into God's presence, getting ready with the laundry list, here's what I need you to do for me today. Stilling ourselves, taking a few deep breaths. That doesn't have to be an Eastern thing. That can be a very much, you know, realize what it is you're doing. It slows your your heart rate down. And 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 then read God's Word. Allow God's Word... To speak to you, and then you build your words to God out of that. Craft your prayer around what you've read in God's word that morning or that time. Now you may say, I have no idea how to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm new to the faith, or I've been in the faith a while, but nobody's ever showed me how to do that. Great. You know what? All of us have a broken prayer antenna. right? None of us, none of us knows how to do this the right way off the bat. Right? And even those of us who maybe have done this for a long time, we need help too. So if you would say, I have no idea to how to be still before the Lord, I have no idea to how, to, how to have a personal worship time, would you come talk to me after this is over with? And I can, I can, give, you some, uh, I can give you some ideas on how to do that. But we need to be quiet before the Lord and we need to listen. We need to talk. Uh, Another way to do this, not only do we listen to God's word, but we also need to talk less in prayer. I was uh, was talking with the the youth guys on Wednesday night, um, and we had a really good discussion. But one of the things I pointed out out is that um, I, I teach prayer the wrong way. Right? All of us, all of us, we learn to pray by listening to other people pray. And so most of us who are comfortable praying... We've listened to long monologue prayers, like the ones I give in the worship service. Which means that when it comes to our prayer time before God, we monologue a lot. right? Rather than a conversation, we basically give God a speech. And at the end of it, we say, thank you very much for listening. I'm out of here. right? So let me encourage you to talk less in prayer. Simplify your prayers. Jesus himself, in Matthew 6, before he teaches us to pray, says... Listen, when you come before God, don't, don't heap up empty phrases. That's what Gentiles do, right? They think that God will hear them because they, because they use lots of words. We don't have to use lots of words. Our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask. So we can ask simply. And so here's my pledge to you. I'm going to aim to make my prayers more simple. Now here's what that means. I have to think about it before I say it, right? 
usually the reason we monologue is because, you know, I didn't think about this, and now I'm stuck in the spot, so I'm just going to verbally vomit everything, right? So listen, uh, talk less in prayer, leave silent spaces in your prayer, that's okay. And then as our hearts become quiet and listening, it ought to replace a hasty mouth with an honest mouth. The preacher goes on in verse 4, he says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. A vow, right? So uh, a vow, in this case, is a promise you make before God. This was more common in the Old Testament and Israel's day than in our day. Uh, But part of worship could be making a vow. So if you were in a tight spot or you wanted God to do something, you would say, Lord, if you would help me with blank, then I will do this. That's a vow. A good example of this would be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We meet Hannah. Hannah is barren. She cannot have children, but she desperately wants them. And so she prays that God would give her a child. And then she makes this vow. She, says, she tells God that if, if you will give me a child, I will dedicate him to your service. God answers her prayer. She, he gives her a boy whose name, she names him Samuel, which means God hears. And then when Samuel is no longer nursing, she gives him back to the Lord. She takes him back to the tabernacle where Israel worshipped at the time and gives him to the priest to serve in the presence of God. So Hannah makes a vow. And she keeps her vow. Here's the principle that the preacher's after. When you tell God you're going to do something, do it. It's that that simple. If you tell God you're going to do something, do it. Again, God is not playing games. Uh, Grace does not mean that God is a... Uh, a kindly grandfather who kind of winks at sin and gives us a lollipop. He is not a tame lion. He is not playing games. He is serious about his glory and about worship. And so when we make a vow, when we say we're going to do something, we should do it. He takes no pleasure in the meaningless chatter of fools. In fact, he goes on, it's better not to make such a promise than it is to make a promise and not keep it. Now, I don't know about you guys, um, well, have you ever, you remember those, I, I don't even know if kids still say this, but remember saying, cross my heart and hope to die? Yep. Or I swear by my mother's grave, right? I swear on my mother's grave, I'm, I'm telling the truth, right? Or, I never said this one because it seems kind of dumb, but if I'm lying, I'm dying, remember that, right? We come up with all manner of ways to vow, right? To swear to other people that we're really telling the truth. Why do we do that? Because we're so bad at telling the truth, right? We, don't, like we, come, we, we have to try to convince people we're being honest because we're so used to dishonesty. Like a regular feature of playtime in our neighborhood is lying, okay? Like we all the time hear stories about what is said on the, on the streets around our house, um, Lying is standard operating procedure for the children who play in our neighborhood. Okay? Huh? Yeah, including our own. Um, It was my wife who said that. Um, And the only difference between our children and us is that we 
are more clever and adept at covering up our dishonesty. Right? We shield the truth. We shade the truth to benefit ourselves. Or we simply just don't speak the truth. Right? Um, and so no wonder we have to come up with ways to try to convince people that we're, we're being honest. We're being truthful. We say, I swear this or I swear that. We're making promises all the time that we have no intention of keeping. And so the preacher says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. When the temple messenger shows up to collect what you promised to God, don't say, it was a mistake. I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. What's the answer? Only say what you mean. Here's how Jesus puts it. Matthew 5, 33. He says, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. See, that's what the religious leaders would do in Jesus' day. They would say, okay, well, now, if you swear by the temple, then, you know, this is the result, and you're going to need to keep that and do that. But if you just swear by, like, the ground, then that doesn't mean as much. And, And Jesus says, this is ridiculous. Stop swearing by things altogether. He says, don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says, speak simply. Here's how, here's how one author put it, uh, framed it for us. He says, simplicity of speech guards sincerity of heart. Simplicity of speech guards sincerity of heart. Do you want to have an honest mouth before God and others? Then speak simply. Evaluate your words before they leave your mouth. Don't use flowery or sugary words to put people off. Bless her heart. When you say bless her heart, we all know what's coming next. You have no intention of blessing her heart. Right? That's, that's what he's talking about. Don't say that. You don't want to bless her heart. And if you don't want to bless her heart, you probably shouldn't say it. Just keep it inside. Right? Say, say what you mean only if you have to say it. Just speak simply. And what enables us to do that? What gives us an honest mouth? Well, look at, look at verse 7, the very end. He says, God is the one you must fear. You may not know if I'm speaking the truth. Heck, I may not even know if I'm speaking the truth. But God does. Again, God is in heaven. He sees everything. He knows not only the words, but he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And that fact should cause us to speak more honestly. God's glory should quiet my heart so that I hush and listen And God's glory should restrain my mouth so that I speak to him more honestly and to others. Now, for the preacher in Ecclesiastes, God was at a distance. Right? The only place you could meet with God was in the temple. And you may hear all of that and you go, oh my gosh. How do I learn to have a 
a listening heart. How can I stop my mouth? If this is, if this is what it means to come into God's presence, then who is worthy? Well, here's the good news. God does not remain at a distance. God did not remain at heaven. He did not remain far off. He actually drew near. God put on flesh. He drew near to us. So God is transcendent. He is also imminent. God draws near to us. Does that diminish God's glory? Does that make God seem less worthy of worship? Absolutely not. Because we can see what the preacher could not see. We see God in the flesh who doesn't remain at a distance but comes close to save us. And that, friend, that leads us to worship and adore him all the more. We have more revelation than what Ecclesiastes has. We're going to capture this in the song we're about to sing in response. Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among ten thousand own him. Joyful choose the better part. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary. Can alone from idols draw. Captivated by his beauty. Worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth. There's no one like him. He's matchless. Let his peerless worth constrain you and crown him your unrivaled king. Let's pray.